electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, David Rubenstein, the Carlyle founder and co-chair and major philanthropist on U.S. economic recovery as COVID-19 fears surge with new case numbers. I think the bottom has been hit. I don't think it's going to get deeper in terms of a recession than what we have now. I think we're coming out of it. Executive priorities from former head of Citigroup, the father of big banking, Wall Street legend Sandy Weil. The CEO has three real responsibilities. One is to their employees to have a safe environment to work in. The second is to a responsibility to their shareholders. And third, they have a social responsibility that really hasn't worked as well as it should have. And addressing American inequality through education and internships. Wiles work with NAF, the National Academy Foundation CEO, J.D. Hoy. We have companies leaning in. We need more. We need more companies willing to say high school students matter in our long-term diversified pipeline strategies for the future. Those stories plus a blast from Buffett past the Oracle of Omaha as a young man on the move. Maybe the stock market is really uh, correcting a previous incorrect forecast this time rather than making a new correct one. It's Friday, June 12th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And we're going to start this morning with the markets. This comes a day after the Dow plunged more than 1,800 points or 6.9 percent. And believe it or not, it's only the biggest drop we've seen since March. It tells you just a little uh, a bit about how volatile these markets have been in recent months. If you've been watching what happened, we had been talking at the beginning of the week about how the Dow over six winning sessions that ended on Monday over that period of time, it really racked up some phenomenal gains. It was a gain of 2,189 points. Well, since then, we've given all of that back and then some. On um, Tuesday, we lost 300 points for the Dow. On Wednesday, we were down by 282. And then yesterday, the market was down by 1,861 points. You add that up, it's a decline of 2,443 points. So all of that ground we had gained over those previous sessions being given back. And this was really something to watch. We had seen those heavy losses uh, early in the morning when we were looking at it, but that just accelerated throughout the course of the day. Uh, And I think everybody was kind of on tenterhooks as we were watching to see what happened at 4 p.m. yesterday. How many times did you look at the... uh stock market yesterday between like 2.30 and 4. Just, just, we're just wondering. How many seconds are there in a day? Yeah. <laughs> like, I think I was glued on what, it the entire time. When, you, when you've seen, you know, I'm not going to talk about the past, but when you've seen things, like, here I go, but when you've seen things, you know, like 1987 or something like that, you just never know. Or even what we had earlier this year. I mean, because it, it, anything's possible when, when it gets like a, it starts snowballing. And when we were, I, I knew it was not going to stop at 800, 900, 1,000, 1,100. And as it was going, it was going I, I thought we were headed for two for, for a while. Yeah. But I'll tell you what I was watching, honestly. I was watching the Dow, it, it, because it's at, at a high level, those points just add up to where you just have this sickening thing. So I was watching the S&P. And one thing that I, that I was taking so, some solace from was that it was holding above 3,000. I was thinking 3,000, we all would have signed mm-hmm. on for 3,000. 
like two months ago. We yeah. all would have, for, for a year-end 3,000, and anybody said 3,000, it was like, wow, you're, you're off, awfully optimistic. And I'm not saying we're out of the woods by, by any means. I, I did feel a little better after reading the Wall Street Journal's op-ed pages today where they go and, and go deep into the numbers in Arizona and Texas and Florida uh, with their lead editorial. And, you know, I don't know whether they, they're not necessarily um, sugarcoating things, but they did point out some factual things that we need to consider. And even Scott Gottlieb said it's not a second wave. It's sort of states that didn't go through the first wave. So I, I don't know. And I was thinking about Europe. Europe has been somewhat successful in reopening, right? They're about two weeks ahead of us, or a month ahead of us or so. And they, they have not had the worst case scenario, right? I mean, is there still hope? I hope there's still hope. I'm, I'm hopeful that there's hope. There's always hope. <laughs> Joining us right now to talk about uh, where we are in this economy is David Rubenstein, Carlisle Group co-founder and co-executive chairman. David, it's great to see you. Um, I don't know if we've had an opportunity to talk during this pandemic, so let's just start with the basics. How, how are you thinking uh, about our economy right now and, and where you think we're all headed? I think the bottom has been hit. I don't think it's uh, going to get deeper in terms of a recession than what we have now. I think we're coming out of it. I think people can overreact, and I think there has been some overreaction that markets from time to time. Clearly, the economy is not a body blow. We haven't had anything like this for generations, but I do think we're on our way back. And there'll be some gyrations up and down as we go through this for the next couple of months. But I think generally the economy is in reasonably good shape uh, looking over the next six to nine months or so. But it's not going to be perfect. It's going to take a while to get back to where we were at the height of the uh, of the bull market. David, tell us, you, you, you have a wide portfolio uh, of companies uh, and you have your fingers in a, in a lot of different industries, a lot of different businesses. Just, just give us a little bit of a snapshot, a sense of what you're seeing right now in, in terms of those businesses. Well, clearly businesses in the United States are down right now and uh, in many different categories. So obviously the technology companies and health companies are doing OK. Uh, China is coming back. Uh, Europe is not as weak as some people in the United States think. The emerging markets will have some struggle because of their currency going against the dollar, uh, their currency might have some challenges. But generally, I think the worst has been has occurred already. And I think we're heading back. But again, we're going to have these ups and downs over the next couple of uh, months. And I think people should not overreact to the uh, the news about the virus being bigger here or, or breaking out there. Uh, I think the economy is now in reasonable shape. And uh, it, it's not going to be perfect for sure. And there are a lot of people out of work but I think we're heading back to where we want to be. It's just going to take some time to get there. Okay, so let me ask you, as, as an investor, what were you doing a month or two ago? And what do you anticipate trying to do in the next several months in terms of putting think, money to work? Well, in the world in which I am more involved, private equity as opposed to daily trading, uh, private equity people have been making certain the companies they already own are in reasonable shape. We learned from the last recession you have to shore up what you already own. And a lot of people have been doing that and making certain those companies have enough liquidity, enough cash. They, they, they might need some additional equity. They might need some additional debt. But we've been focused on that. I think as we get to the next phase of this, you're going to see people buying more and more companies that they don't already own, probably at prices that seem a little bit cheaper than they would have been about you know six months ago. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, though. How do you how do you feel about valuations? Because while you are playing in the private markets, the private markets, I imagine, are going to try to reflect the public markets. And despite right. this little blip that we've had in the past 24 hours, and we'll see whether it, it gets better or worse, 
you know, as we've been talking about, it's almost as if the virus didn't happen. Well, the markets have, the public markets have probably been ahead of where the economy is for a while, but the public markets, as you know, are a forward indicator. Um, from time to time, the markets may get excited, but generally, I think the economy has probably bottomed out from where it was going to go, and I think it's heading back. And as people head back to work, we should recognize that you can get a fair amount of work done at home. And I also think people would recognize that the economy isn't going to be the same economy we knew before. Everybody's not going to come back to work who was hired before. Uh, some people are going to work from home. Some companies are not going to be as successful as before. And some will be more successful than before. Economies evolve. So I think that the worst part is probably behind us. But I don't want to make it sound as if i uh, Pollyannish. I do think there's going to be challenges going forward. But I don't think there's any reason for panic. I think the federal government has done a, as good a job as you could probably expect uh, uh, putting liquidity into the economy. That's made it possible for us to be where we are today. That's what I was going to ask you. Are, a, are you of the view that we're going to need more stimulus money um, from from Congress and what you think the Federal Reserve is or isn't going to do going forward? I think the Congress is likely to pass one more uh, stimulus bill somewhere in the one and a half trillion dollar range would be my guess. Um, probably sometime in July would be what I would expect. And they'll have many components of the programs we've already seen, some of the ones that have worked successfully. I do think there'll be some assistance to the states and local governments. I do think that there'll be some uh, additional uh, loan programs. And I do think that some of the uh, issues that have been addressed will probably be uh, raised again in these bills. Not all liability issues will probably be taken care of. I think the Federal Reserve recognizes that it is a key player and it is the, maybe the key player. I think they've done a wonderful job of putting liquidity into the market. And, and I do think that's been very helpful. And I think they are prepared to do more if necessary. And I suspect they will. Hey, David, I, I wonder if you can kind of talk through what you see the long term impacts uh, being potentially from this. There, there are a lot of companies that have seen their business evaporate. Um, some of them are going to be OK. Some of them will get loans. Some of them are not going to be OK. And I think of Hertz as, as kind of a case in point. Its business disappeared. It's got all kinds of issues. And I ask you about that just because you know the company. I know it's been all the way back to 2013 since you sold your remaining stake in that. It hurts. And lots of other similar companies that have seen, you know, if you think travel and leisure, any of those companies, the airlines that have seen business shut down, maybe the airlines are different because they get funding from the government. But those are the ripple effects that I think we're all still trying to figure out how this plays out, what it means, uh, not only for those businesses that close, but for the employees that go under as a result. Uh, it's, capitalism evolves, and every company isn't going to go forward perfectly when you have ups and downs. So clearly, the leisure industry, uh, cruise ships and hotels and um, and airlines have been hard hit. I don't think they're going to go out of business, but the the ones that will go out of business probably are the small mom and pop companies. In other words, Marriott and Hilton can get enough credit to go forward, and they will come back. They have great brands. The people that actually own those hotels, the mom and pops that might own one or two hotels, they're going to struggle a bit. And that's a that's a big problem. And they, I don't think there's an easy answer for that. But the economy will evolve and every company is not going to come back as strong as it was. And some companies you've never heard of before, like Zoom, uh, will all of a sudden be much stronger. So that's the way economies are. I don't think that the mistake that was made in the Great Recession and the Great Depression was made here. The Great Depression, they raised interest rates and the federal government did very little. Here, we've learned the lesson of the Great Recession, which is that you need federal stimulus if the economy is going to keep going. I think the federal government's done a pretty good job, but there's still more to be done. Uh, but I don't know if all the people are out of work now that it's it's going to they're going to get their job back quickly. It's going to take some time for people to come back. Normally, when you have a recession, it takes about three years to get back 
uh, to the peak where you were before the recession. And it might take about three years before we get back to where we were before we went into this recession. Hey, David, we uh, often uh, think of you as one of the ultimate Washington insiders. To the extent that this pandemic and, and, and the unrest and protests in this country have taken place during this period, how do you see this playing out politically in the fall and, and even even beyond that? Well, clearly, uh, the racial uh, unrest and on tension is something that is, uh, you know, we didn't expect. There have been these kind of incidents and, and, and killings before, and it hasn't produced the worldwide revolt and, and, and protests we've seen. So this is a real wake-up call, as it should be. And I do think the federal government will do more and society will do more to improve the racial relations. But we're not going to overnight solve all racial problems, that's for certain. But I do think it's a wake-up call that nobody probably expected. And, I, and for that reason, I think there's some good that can come out of this, because the, the discussions between blacks and whites that I now see going on in organizations that I'm involved with or know about is a very healthy thing. But I, I don't want to make it sound like everybody is all of a sudden going to change all their views that they've had in their lives and everybody's going to uh, be perfectly uh, uh, handling racial relations. That's not going to happen. But I do think it's an improvement and we have the potential to really make a real uh, improvement in where we have been for many years. Do, do you want to, given the economy and, and the way you think it's headed, do you want to handicap the situation in November? Well, I would say it it's, depends on where the economy is at the time of the election. But as we know, uh, when you have a recession, presidents tend not to get reelected. So uh, if we're in a recession, then it'll be it'll be more difficult. Uh, when I worked for Jimmy Carter, we had a recession. We didn't get reelected. Gerald Ford didn't get reelected in a recession. George Herbert Walker Bush didn't get reelected in a recession. William McKinley was the last president who got a, elected in a recession. Most economists think we'll be out of the recession by the time of the election, though it won't be a perfect economy. We'll be technically probably out of the recession or, or close to it. So it's hard to say. But I think the next four or five months are just going to go up and down a bit. And I just think it's very difficult to predict. OK, David Rubenstein, it's always great to see you. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you. My pleasure. Next on Squawk Pod, Wall Street legend Sandy Weil, the former Citigroup chairman who built the modern megabank, is reinventing classrooms across America. And later. Joe, you know what you said about kind of watching these things as they heat up and, and knowing that it's not going to end well and that it's going to continue. Yeah. Like, we're going to show you some sound that, that popped up on Twitter yesterday um, of Warren Buffett back in 1962, the day after the flash crash when the market saw its biggest point drop, at least, since the Great Depression. Back in 1962, he was 31 at that point. And you can listen to what he had to say the day after that. I'd never seen video of him before. I'd seen old pictures of him, but I'd never seen old mm. video. That should be that should be good. We're looking forward to that. that and and he was probably similar to what he says now when there's a tumultuous time. Yeah. I'll, I'll show you in 10, 15 minutes. We'll give you a peek of it. Okay. Um, We're back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Becky. 
as America continues to reel from its twin crises of civil unrest and the coronavirus. Our next guests say that education actually holds the key to creating a more equitable society. Brookings calls the U.S. education system one of the most unequal in the industrialized world, where students have vastly different experiences based on their social status. Joining us right now is Sandy Weil. He is the architect of the modern-day big banks. He's the former Citigroup CEO and chairman, the former president at American Express, and the founder and chair at NAF. J.D. Hoy is the CD, CEO of NAF, and uh, welcome to both of you. Sandy, I hope that uh, given what we've seen in the markets yesterday, you don't mind if I ask a couple of questions about what you're thinking right now uh, with the economy just based on what we're seeing. Okay, great. Uh, Sandy, first of all, it's good to see you. It's been far too long. But we've been watching the financials get hammered just about as much as any other industry that's out there right now. That's because we think we're going to see zero interest rates for forever, essentially, and because we're worried about the fallout from the coronavirus and the economic shutdown. If you were looking at this, looking at the financials, do you think they have been unduly hammered at this point or do you think that they're down and they're down with good reason? I I don't first understand that I don't have any inside information. But I do think that the financial industry is in very good shape this time. And uh, I think that the stocks are selling, a lot of them well below book value. Some of them have created different models. And, uh, for example, I think uh, companies like Morgan Stanley and Schwab are really very good buys for the long term because they really represent the building up of assets, recurring income. I think they've made a lot of very smart moves and, and the stocks are, are really, really cheap relative to the potential. Uh, I think that the industry is in good shape uh, and we've got to see what's going to happen. But uh, I would expect they come out of this and uh, people will make some decent amount of money owning uh, financial companies, including some okay. property casualty companies. Let's talk a little bit about what we have seen from the big banks to, to this point, and that's tens of billions of dollars that they're taking in uh, lost loan reserves and getting ready for what could be a very difficult, let's say, year or two years even to come. If you listen to some of them on their conference calls, they talk about how a recession could last out to 2021. Sandy, if you were still running a big bank, would you be that conservative as well? Well, I think banks always have to be responsible. Uh, so I, I would assume and hope that they're not making loans with the understanding that they can't be paid back. Uh, I think that our government, uh, both the Federal Reserve and, and the Congress and the uh, presidential operation, really have done a lot to uh, try and get our system back on track. Uh, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet has increased from less than $2 trillion to over $7 trillion already. And they're adding to that by the rate of about $20 billion a day. So uh, I think they're well on their way to $10 billion. And that, that money has to be put to work in certain places. And, uh, you know, uh, stocks are paying a lot higher rate in dividends than uh, you can get on uh, short-term or government bonds. So uh, uh, I'm hopeful that we're on the right track. What do you think of what we've heard from Jay Powell about how they'll be keeping interest rates at zero for, for quite some time to come? And no one's really pushed it there yet, but you think it's possible we see negative interest rates in this country? I think it's great that we have the head of the Fed that uh, is not an economist. And I think he's been really, really terrific in how fast he acted. Uh, and 
I think that that really has put us in a position to uh, be able to do better than people could have expected uh, in a recovery. I think the fact that we've uh, you know, really embraced a public-private partnership where the government is working with uh, the pharma companies and the biotech companies to come up with solutions to uh, the COVID-19, both uh, in the form of medications as well as vaccines. And what appears to be happening in a very, very fast way is uh, making an enormous amount of progress in that direction. Let's shift gears a bit and talk about why you were booked to come on in the first place. And, and that's to talk about NAF, NAF, which originally started out as National Academy Foundation. Um, J.D., thank you for being with us this morning, too. Sandy, let's just talk a little bit about what this is, why you founded it, and, 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 and what you've been trying to do at NAF. Well, we started NAF in 1980 in, in New York City with one high school in Brooklyn. And basically, it was started to... Uh, try and encourage our education system in New York to teach uh, young people about the opportunities in the financial industry and how that works. Uh, because a lot of companies were thinking about moving their back offices out of the city at that point in time. And we created a partnership that uh, worked with the Board of Education and, and NAF and also with the teachers unions. And the teachers unions at the beginning encouraged teachers to take courses in the financial industry so that they knew something about what they were going to go, what they were going to go and teach. And over the next 40 years, we've expanded from that one school in Brooklyn to about 600 and some odd academies in, in 32 states with 112,000 students. And we've expanded the subjects that we teach from financial services and second hospitality and tourism to uh, engineering, information technology, and health sciences, which are where a lot of the jobs are. So about two-thirds of our students are in STEM-type programs. Uh, our students that get to the ninth grade, to the twelfth grade, rather, 99% of them graduate, and about 85% of them go on to college. So we really believe that mentorship and uh, and, and summer internships are really an important part of a young person's education. And companies now feel, and the Business Roundtable has said, and a lot of company CEOs have said, that they really think that they have a social responsibility to work with the part of, of the American population that really does not have and has not had the opportunity to learn about the future of digitization and what's happening in our economy. So I, I think that we're really in a terrific place. I think it's about time that companies understood that it's much more, it's just as important to have social responsibilities as it is to have a responsibility to shareholders and to employees. And I think that for that statement to, to work, I think the CEOs of companies have to be involved and because they are really the leaders and that's what leadership is about, leading a subject like this that has not been focused on as much as it should be, uh, as well as coming up with a way to grade people so that their compensation is based not just on how they do as far as creating financial uh, profits but, uh, and, and new products, but also what they're doing in being socially responsible and, and getting the underserved to participate. 
in our economy. And I think as part of that, it's very important for a corporate America to give high school students summer internships, even though the, the students are younger than 18, but they're very, very eager. And, and by doing that, they're opening these students' eyes that they will want to go to college and get the kind of education that will give them a chance of being successful and participating in the great American experiment. J.D., what, what do you hear from, from students who you talk to in these programs? What, what do you watch as they kind of go through the four years? And, and then how many of them do you hear back from once they go on to college and beyond? Yeah, we, um, we have a, a really nice um, alumni network, and we have some great examples of students who have been highly successful by using the Career Academy framework to, to connect. I think the real magic, the real brilliance in what Andy put together for NAF you know, 40 years ago, is that this is a partnership. This is not waiting for schools to get their work done and then employers hire the people they want. This is an opportunity for employers and schools to work together with communities and inspire young people to engage more officially and formally in their education and also in their career planning. I can't tell you the number of young people who say they just, they had no idea of what it was like um, to work for a given company, and it's changed their aspirations, it's changed their viewpoint, and from the company's perspective, they have been thrilled at getting the future consumer's viewpoint into their work. And COVID has put us on its head. I mean, it's and we've been talking for 30 years about the importance of technology and how we need to do better well, COVID shut our schools down, and we I'm very concerned that we have to lean in hard and fast right now to make sure that we do not lose the gains that we've made in education, and we need to amplify, get technology, get access and connectivity to every student, and part of that can be tied to internships. It can be done virtually. We're doing it now. Where Where is that happening virtually now? Because that, that's been another big question about coronavirus, that, you know, schools that, that have the money were already set up and had their kids already had laptops and, and, and right. schools that didn't have the same resources. Ready to go, right? Yeah. Right. right, right. So, so what, what have you seen in, in the places It's the brilliance, were? right? It's the brilliance of Sandy's design of saying partnerships matter by bringing companies to the problem. Bring companies in, solve the problem, identify where there are gaps, bring companies in to help build the pipeline. And we have companies leaning in. We need more. We need more companies willing to say high school students matter in our long-term diversified pipeline strategies for the future. We're not going to wait till college students get the internships. We're going to start earlier, and we're going to make sure that we inspire them around our work and we take advantage of the brilliance they bring to the table. Sandy, I have, a, I have a management question for you, Sandy, based on a comment you had made earlier when you were talking about inequality and, and sort of the move towards stakeholder capitalism. I, I've talked to a number of CEOs throughout this pandemic who've said, look, we're realizing that maybe we can do more with less, meaning we may, maybe we don't need as many employees. Uh, we can be productive with less employees. And yet many of them have signed on to the business roundtable uh, pledge and the like. Uh, which puts employees on, I don't know if it puts it on par with shareholders and the like, but also, or other companies saying, do I cut my dividend or do I cut employees? And, and so the question I ask you is, what do you do in this type of environment on, on these type of thorny questions? Well, I, I think that a CEO of a company has uh, 
as I said before, three real responsibilities. One is to their employees to have a, a safe uh, environment to work in and to do the right thing. The second is to a responsibility to their shareholders, because if they don't uh, do well in that regard, they're not going to be able to raise the monies in public markets that they're going to need to grow their company in the future. And third, they have a social responsibility that really hasn't worked as well as it should have, because a lot of CEOs turn it over to somebody else in the company at a, at a lower level, and they don't really lead it themselves. When I was the running Citigroup, we had over 200 interns every summer. And the places that those interns worked in our company, the morale in that division or in that office was much higher and the productivity was much better than any other place because the people felt that they were really doing something good to make, make their company better and, make, and feel better about themselves. Hey, J.D., I'll, I'll ask you one more question just about things you've tried sure. that have worked and, and things you've tried that maybe haven't worked just for other businesses that are watching, maybe trying to figure out how they could go along with this and, and, and what they could do either in-house or, or reaching out to you. Sure. So one of the big, I think, what's worked um, and continues to work is designing strategies together. I mean, I think one of the big problems we have especially in this COVID moment where people have been shut down and they can't meet together, is people try to throw ideas out and launch things independent of one another. And, and I think what we've learned in the process with the power of this design of bringing industry-based content into an educational experience, that it is the relevance of what is currently the current reality of the work, not maybe what we did 10 years ago. So I think what we've really learned is that we have to plan this and build this together. And Sandy puts it under the uh, auspices of leadership, and it's clearly important, leadership matters. Um, and building these designs together so that community leaders, uh, local elected officials, school leaders, and business leaders are all leading in on the same objective around young people's success, mm -hmm. I think, is the real win that we've seen. The losing strategy that we've seen, I think, is everybody wanting to start their own thing. And I think one of the things that we pride ourselves on is our willingness to partner with others um, and make sure that we get to all the students who need this um, and not worry so much about it being solely our brand, but work in partnership with others to do the right thing for our communities and our people. I think we can take our organization to have a, a million students involved every year rather than 112,000, and that would really make a difference. Sandy, I, I, I'm so impressed with what you've built, uh, the idea that you had this vision 40 years ago to see it in so many places. I want to thank you both for being with us today, um, sharing these solutions, and we hope to talk to you both again soon. Thank you very much. Thanks. Great to see you. Bye. Next, what goes around comes around the Oracle of Omaha's first TV interview. Well, in a nutshell, Mr. Buffett, can you give us uh, your opinion on just exactly what happened, what caused it? Well, there was... Uh Undoubtedly, some force selling the uh, the week uh, when the stock market hit the news. Squawk Pod will be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Becky Quick. Welcome back, everybody. Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. We're going to show you a clip of an interview with Warren Buffett from May 29th, 1962. That was a day after what was called the flash crash. That's a day in which the Dow lost 5.8 percent. And at that point in time, this was the biggest point loss that they had seen since the Great Depression. This, of course, was before people had a Bloomberg terminal or the Internet or TV stations that would give you instant access to stock prices. Only ticker tapes could do that. And there was so much volume on that day that it actually took the tapes hours after the close that day to print all the trade. People didn't know for probably three hours after the close how much money they'd actually lost on that day. So you can imagine what they were feeling and watching as this ran up. Again, this was a bigger drop that we'd seen percentage-wise yesterday, but back then it was a pretty big deal and it was a pretty significant move. Here's what Warren Buffett said the next day when when he was interviewed on camera. The stock market has been a good forecaster uh, from time to time in the past. It also has been a rather poor forecaster occasionally. For example, the last four or five years, the stock market has been booming along and uh, presumably forecasting better business, which has really not materialized. Corporate profits are are not any better than they were five years ago, but stock prices are uh, 50% higher thereabouts. Uh, So maybe the stock market is really uh, correcting a previous incorrect forecast this time rather than making a new correct one. In fact, this happened in the midst of what was called the Kennedy slide, the S&P 500 from December of 1961 through June of 1962 lost 22.5%. So that was a huge drop in the midst of a massive slide and a lot of uncertainty that was there. You had the Bay of Pigs invasion and other things that were happening. But after that, if you watched what happened, there was a huge S&P boom that took place in the years and years to come after that. So a big run up from that time on just goes to show that these things come, these things go. And uh, the stock market can confound just about anybody at any given point. Guys, again, I I had uh, seen old pictures of Warren Buffett before. I'd never heard him speak before. A lot of the mannerisms are the same. And and just to point out, he was 31 years old when he did that interview. And uh, I wonder... Unbelievable thing. Yeah, he'd probably say, "If I knew now, uh, or if I knew that, you know, he's 31. How much has he learned? I mean, he has learned a lot, obviously. So I guess we shouldn't assume that he's the same person he is now. But that was pretty, that was pretty good analysis there and and, and prescient. But you figure between 31 and where he is now, how many things has he seen, learned, and and put into, uh, you know." into his brain to come up with a lot of the things he comes up with now. He pr- probably interesting to talk well, to him now, about, about, about what he was like back then, what he was thinking, mistakes he hadn't made yet, things he hadn't learned yet. Yeah. One of the things he's learned now is don't come on and do television interviews and then right. build things like this. 
trying to remember what I was doing at 31. I don't think it was good. Uh, <laughs> definitely yeah, wasn't neither. on TV talking about my investments. <laughs> investments. No. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, he, his partnership, he had just put it together in January that year, and I think he had $7 million that he was managing at that point. So yeah. that was mostly friends and close family that he had put together with it. I guess I was cold calling, though, now that I think about it. I was cold calling, prospecting. Uh, anyway, uh, using all those Dale Carnegie lines. Do you guys ever take Dale Carnegie? It, should I go to break now? No, but Buffett did. Should I go to break now or would it be five minutes now? Would that be better for you, Andrew? That's the alternative. <laughs> anyway. And that's Squawk Pod. Thank you for listening today and for another week, the 13th of remote podcasting. Thanks for sticking with us and our social distance, as well as Zoom, Skype, and phone interviews. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you listen. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a good weekend. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.